This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Genflone, and today we're going to talk about psychological coercion. And so this episode is going to be named similar to a blog post I posted at the Human Trafficking Center, which is psychological abuse is an inherent part of human trafficking. It is based on an unpublished paper I've written in the past year and puts together a lot of different information relating to psychological and emotional abuse and torture, domestic abuse, social death, and many other exciting terms. Mm-hmm. How you doing, JJ? I'm doing good. I'm really excited for what is the first part of what is going to be a two-part series on sort of the psychological aspects of human trafficking. Most notably, what sort of psychological damage is done to human trafficking victims by their captors, and why it is that the mental or emotional portion of trafficking is so important in terms of keeping control of people. So my interest in this topic happened uh, along a continuum in the past few years where just different experiences and as I was in college and experiences outside of it. And one of them was talking to somebody where I was mentioning Douglas Blackman's Slavery by Another Name, which talked about slavery after the Civil War. And one of the comments I got when I brought that up to them was, well, slaves were treated good. And if you were to go to sites like the Council of Conservative Citizens, as quoted by Dylan Roof, the Charleston shooter, he mentioned, hey, there's slave narratives where they said that slaves were attached to their owners and some of them missed their owners. And there's all these positive things they said about their owners. I think the idea that you can make a blanket statement like slaves were treated good just to be pure BS and flat out untrue. And I'm going to explain why. So one of the books I've read on this journey is Slavery and Social Death by Orlando Patterson. The concept of social death, it's that when you are a slave, and you could argue in some ways it's like being a prisoner now to a degree, that you are not a full member of society, that you in some way are not part of the recognized community with all of its benefits. Now, as this related to slavery, you have the context, as Patterson explains it, where the master absolutely owned the slave from a legal standpoint. And ownership is not just owning this person as property, which is bad enough. It's owning their labor and it's owning their will. And this goes all the way back to the Roman conception of absolute dominion, but it also was restated in our law in the United States during antebellum slavery, so that even though the person being dominated still had some choice and agency, that relationship it was based on the power of the master, that the slave didn't have power, so that the slave was essentially an extension of the master's will. And if that's a disturbing idea, it should be disturbing. 
And being socially dead means they had no legal claim to relatives, to ancestry, to their descendants. While practically speaking, slaves still managed to have families, even if many of them were worried about being pulled apart from the families. Mm-hmm. But legally, they didn't have that claim, nor did they have a claim to their culture. So they were essentially non-people. And I'm going to build on that, but uh, any thoughts at this stage, JJ? Yeah, I think that this is something that we come across a lot, Seth, when we're talking anecdotally about human trafficking, is that this narrative gets brought up with, well, they had a family, or well, the domestic helper was able to go to the supermarket and was trusted with the family debit card. Well, the field worker was given access to a truck to carry out their daily activities. So, of course, they can't be a true 100% victim because they're not being kept in, like, literal chains and they do have some freedom of movement or, in one case, I mean, anecdotally, I had someone try to tell me that a particular victim I was helping through a process after they had finished trafficking couldn't have been a true human trafficking victim because they had access to the Internet. It's like, no, Reddit doesn't make you less of a slave because you have access to it. What's really happening there is that someone is given minor privileges or minor movements because that's more convenient for the trafficker, not the victim of trafficking. And having some joy in your life and having some freedoms doesn't negate the reality that you still are being forcibly subservient to another human being. So there's this irony that when we see trafficking-related advertising promotion, well, anti-trafficking promotion, that you see people that are in cages, in, in ropes and chains and other physical restraints behind locked doors, And there's a degree of truth to that, but that was more reminiscent of old-time slavery, where it was legalized, where they had the freedom to use violence legally to keep the slave under control, and it was primarily done through direct or threatened use of force or physical coercion, as well as mental coercion. But legally, both the slave owner and the community at large had power over that slave. So just leaving their situation would not protect them or free them, especially if they were in a state or community where it was illegal. Whereas today, psychological coercion is a much bigger factor. Now, what we'll get into in part two are the legal factors, like what, how trafficking is very much about psychological coercion. But today, we're going to focus more on the psychological and what this actually looks like for people in these situations and how it relates to other forms of psychological coercion and abuse. So we're going to look at the forms shortly, but one of the points I want to make, and I'll tell you a little bit about my own journey here, the methods used are very similar to those used in domestic abuse, torture, cults, hostage situations, and prisoners of war. That's not to say they're exactly the same, but it's to say that when somebody is using psychological coercion, you're using psychological means, could be verbal or nonverbal, to cause emotional or cognitive learning. So you're, you're trying to control, that this is all about control. And 
you want to change their beliefs, attitudes, or behaviors. So you want them to comply. You want them to please the client. You want them to work hard without complaining in conditions that may be tiring or excruciating. And over time, that produces anxiety, fear, and stress. I minored in family studies way back in my undergrad at Messiah College and have studied psychology over the years. And more recently, because of some experiences, I went and studied verbal abuse and psychological and emotional abuse quite a bit and realized that abuse is on a spectrum and control is on a spectrum, that you can find verbally abusive tactics almost anywhere. Sometimes they're encouraged, and you can find them in marriage, and you can find them in families, and you can find them at work. That does mean, not mean they're all the same. Trafficking or old-time slavery were a very intense control framework. It's a very formalized, harsh form of control. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have similarities with a given marriage or a given work situation for somebody who's not being trafficked. Any comments, JJ? Yeah, I think that this is also really reflective. I mean, as you brought up sort of domestic violence situations, but to expand upon that, Mm -hmm. this is a very similar sort of situation to what we see that plays out in forced marriage. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people who are victims of forced marriage. So they've been forced, gener- generally, typically, it's it's younger women who are forced to marry older men, but sometimes you do have two children that were forced to marry against their will because of cultural reasons. And then they're living with a, an older relative. So when you do see this sort of forced marriage thing happening, what you often do find is that people who, just like someone in a domestic violence situation, they can have a perfectly lovely dinner together. They can exist in the house for weeks at a time and have it actually be sort of a safe and, dare I say, even nurturing environment. The problem is the minute that it's not, a child, bride or groom, doesn't have the option to go, all right, I'm leaving. I'm calling the police to protect me. I find you to be damaging to my health, so I'm going to go. Because that latter option is removed, even if that family life has in some ways been good or helpful. In particular, I'm thinking of forced marriage of North Korean refugees uh, and Chinese farmers, in which for the first time, a lot of these female child brides are getting food and having shelter. And it is only after a long period of time, sometimes several years, that these women who were married sometimes at the age as young as 10 go, actually, you know what? No, now I'm comfortable enough or I've had children and I feel responsible that I can leave this situation. So it takes time. And I think if your only image of slavery that you're working with is of somebody, you know, chained to a radiator, you're going to miss out on a lot of the real victims that are out there, what that looks like. So to talk about psychological abuse, which is often called emotional abuse, there are potential differences between those terms, but... I'm going to use this one definition here, that psychological emotional abuse may be defined as incidents of recurring criticism, denigration, and or verbal aggression against a person, as well as acts to isolate and or dominate another person. The definition I just read was not a trafficking definition, so I want to note that. And then 
if it is de delivered verbally, it could be considered verbal abuse, which again, criticism, threats, insults, humiliation, degradation, harassment, what it ultimately gets down to, and again, this could happen in a family context, that you are defining the other person. Or I should say the abuser is defining the other person. I don't want to imply any of you are a certain way. But yeah. uh, see, no, uh, that the abuser defines people, tells them what they are, what they think, tells them what their motives are, that they tell them what their desires are, and essentially erode their identity. So again, and, I, and this was part of what was fascinating is I read a quote from Orlando Patterson about a slave being an extension of his master's will. And then I found a similar phrase in Patricia Evans' book about verbal abuse, which was, when the abuser's projection is pervasive, he treats his partner as if she were an extension of himself, the glove on his hand, under his control, there to follow orders. And that's one of the ways that this developed is seeing that you even have people in completely different fields using exactly the same language without collaborating. And one of the ways this happened in the South and one of the archetypes was uh, Sambo, the degraded man-child ideology of how slaves could be viewed where the slave owner was paternal and then you had the slave. And as described by Stanley Elkins, Sambo was docile but irresponsible, loyal but lazy, humble but chronically given to lying and stealing, his behavior was full of entile silliness and his talk inflated with childish exaggeration. His relationship with his master was one of utter dependence and childlike attachment. It was indeed this childlike quality that was the very key to his being. And that's where you would have slaves that would try to fit a certain mold so they could avoid being beaten and so they could avoid having their master's displeasure. And there's people who've been children or wives or husbands who also have experienced not just abuse but anger when they step outside the mold placed on them and where this ultimately goes is i'm trying to draw the similarity of technique but again not trying to equal these things necessarily although i do not doubt that there are some marriages where one person is essentially a slave well and you see this play out maybe this is me being colored by mm-hmm being a grad student <laughs> is that, you know, well, we have these conversations too about the idea of wage slavery, quote unquote, or the idea of interns that have been abused in systems where they keep coming back to work for free day after day after day for an organization that is otherwise harmful to them, but do so because that's perceived as something that would be really important for their future or that at some cost that it's necessary that they participated in. And we've certainly seen this too with men and women because it can happen to men and women and a variety of relationships what it is when they are in a abusive situation whether they're dating they're married what have you right and it could be employers who are really exploiting at some level their employees with it not being trafficking with it just being a normal workplace situation that there's a lot of exploitation there's people who get controlled and put into molds. There's fam people in families where that happens. Or again, the techniques are the same, but where it doesn't end up being trafficking because it's not the range of control where people's movements are being controlled or they haven't been totally depleted physically or emotionally. But that line 
while trafficking is an extreme form of exploitation, the line between, say, extreme wage theft and pushing the employee and trafficking is sometimes fuzzy, which is part of the problem with identifying trafficking, especially if it's in a normal work situation, is trying to figure out, again, legally, what are the signs where we can say that person is in debt bondage? That person checks so many different areas where we think that they're trafficked. But ultimately, with trafficking, it's about creating isolation and dependence, where it's not that you have to physically restrain a person, but it's, it's a cage without bars. It's a room without walls. It's restraining the person psychologically instead of needing physical restraints. And part of the ways you can do that, especially if you're with traffickers, are you can, you can threaten. You can threaten harm to the person. You can threaten harm to their family, etc. And I think what's interesting about that, too, is you can also threaten harm. I think a lot of people perceive harm as being a direct threat, like I'm going to kill your siblings. I'm going to burn your house down. But we saw there were a number of, and I will, I will link this down below, of course, there are a number of human trafficking situations in the late 90s where young girls have been trafficked into hair salons to participate in hair braiding. So basically be unpaid slaves who were doing braiding of hair in urban areas. And what those girls had been told was that there essentially was a religious ritual that had been done that should they leave, they would go to hell. Not necessarily that they would die automatically, but that these children, should they go against their trafficker, would suffer some deep harm to their immortal soul. And because they had this particular deep religious upbringing and this particular form of education where they really thought that this was a thing that could be true, even when these girls were rescued by law enforcement, they didn't want to leave. They were too afraid to leave. So these threats can also be threats to more existential sort of vague things, but that doesn't make them any less of a threat. Well, and based on different articles that I'm going to quote, it could be withholding pay. We're not going to pay you. Could be we're going to deport you. These aren't actually theoretical. They do withhold pay. They do threaten to, to uh, deport them. They do threaten to harm their family. They do threaten to contact the authorities. They do create false debts and fees. As uh, Kevin Bales mentioned with interviewing male bonded laborers in Brazil, they might exploit a sense of honor to repay that they want dignity. And so they're going to use the rules against them and maybe don't even have to force them. They'll just create walls with words. So as one of the ways to look at specific techniques, which I realize will be very helpful in trying to wrap our mind around that, there are some people who've linked Biderman's framework with trafficking. And I will get to that article, but before that, I'll explain who Albert Biderman was. He was a sociologist in the 50s, created a framework in 1957 to illustrate psychological coercion with confined people, specifically looked at American soldiers who gave false confessions during the Vietnam War, I'm sorry, the Korean War, 
This is one of the early uses of the term brainwashing. Brainwashing is a non-scientific, more media-oriented term that doesn't really mean a lot of things that are specific, but you can uh, look at a lot of psychological coercion as essentially brainwashing, that you are creating behavior or making a person do something through stress or these different techniques. What's also interesting about Biderman's framework, Amnesty International did a report on torture and referenced the framework, and a congressional subcommittee in the United States noted that Biderman's framework was taught and recommended to use on prisoners being held at Guantanamo Bay. Wrap your head around that one if you can. So eight methods. Number one, isolation. Essentially deprives the victim of all social support and the ability to resist. Makes the victim dependent. Number two, monopolization of perception. So monopolization of perception fixes attention upon the immediate predicament, fosters introspection so that they can't think about other things. Number three, induced debilitation and exhaustion. So weakens their mental and physical ability to resist, such as when you keep somebody working all the time. Threats, which cultivate anxiety and despair. We've talked a bit about that already with like threatening family. Occasional indulgences, provides positive motivation for compliance, hinders adjustment to deprivation. So that's being nice to them sometimes, giving them a reward, showing them that you're not always going to hurt them. But that also confuses them and makes them not know what to expect. Number six, demonstrating omnipotence and omniscience suggests the futility of resistance. So that's where you have somebody watching them or you give them the impression that somebody is watching them no matter what they're doing so that they always are feeling on guard. Seven, degradation. Makes the cost of resistance damaging to the self-esteem and makes capitulation seem the better choice. It makes them just think about basic animal level concerns like eating. And eight, enforcing trivial demands where you develop compliance by, you know, if they're a minute late, you are mean if they look a certain way, if they didn't comb their hair, that you're, whereby obsessing over the little things where they're just, again, their stress is heightened and they don't know what's going, they're going to be concerned about. Yeah, and what I really want to point out here too is, again, I think that what a lot of people who've never been in this sort of situation or experience, their immediate response is, I mean, they want to be empathetic and sympathetic, but they have a limit. And so their response is, well, why is this effective? These are all tools that are used, but why are these tools effective? And what you need to remember about a human trafficking victim is that the ideal victim is someone who is already so marginalized and so vulnerable, probably because these things have already happened to them in their life. So they are people who are not as connected to their local community or they're not connected to a supportive community. They're people that don't have a responsible, loving, aware, and so we say comfortable home life. They don't have a support network. 
And one of the reasons why they may not have that support network is because they might themselves be coming out of an abusive situation, which then makes them vulnerable to traffickers. And so then what you have are people who are either through family, through their community, or say through the system, if they've had really bad experiences with law enforcement, people that are being victimized again and again and again. And every time that happens, they're being psychologically attacked in, in a lot of ways, because what it is that they consider to be their self or their identity or what they even consider to be normal is modifying. And so when you see generational slavery happening, it's not necessarily that a child who's in generational debt slavery has been beaten by their captor, but they know of someone in their family who has. And they know that their father, who is quite angry about his own situation, takes things out on their mother. And they know that everyone in the community is in a similar situation. So if that person somehow escapes debt bondage that's been generational slavery, where do they go? Well, they're very likely actually to end up in trafficking situations again, because what their normal level or sort of what their situational awareness is, is very limited. And this is why we say things like homeless, but especially homeless youth are more apt to be involved in human trafficking situations simply because they have less sort of resources available to them, be that actual sort of physical resources like capital or people. So I just want everyone to sort of bear in mind that what levels of coercion work best against you are probably the ones that sort of you have a, a little bit of a hint of in your own history. So I know personally, coming from a very conservative Catholic background and growing up in a very religious family, I am probably more apt to respond to the psychological coercion that is something tied into religion or the idea that to leave is to be sinful or to leave is to cause harm to your family via religious means. As somebody who didn't grow up around any sort of physical violence, that would actually probably shock me and I would be more apt to seek help the first time it happened. But I probably wouldn't seek help if someone got to me sort of mentally based on religion when I was younger, just because I was already sort of conditioned to believe these particular things and to know, well, you have to do your chores because Jesus wants you to. <laughs> you have to respect your elders because this is what the Bible tells you. And so to modify from that is damaging. But if you are in that situation, say you're me, and the religious angle has worked, and then also sort of the threat of physical violence comes up and you don't get assistance, sometimes that threat of physical violence can maybe sort of overarch the others. So I just want people to be very clear that this isn't, you're not, when you're dealing with trafficking victims, very, very rarely are you dealing with sort of the Liam Neeson taken, rich, highly upper class, English speaking, white girl with no psychological problems, no history of abuse, a huge support network of people, highly educated. You're not dealing with someone who knows I should call for help because this isn't okay. You're mm -hmm. dealing with people who are like, this is maybe the best choice for me at the moment and then get trapped in a situation that they can't get out of. Also taken as a terrible movie, don't watch it. <laughs> I said it. Don't sue me though, I'm poor. So some of the different parts of the trafficking experience, hate to call it that, everything that is part of being trafficked, among other things, is it's usually not one step. 
Yes. In fact, you may have multiple people involved. They might have different motives even. There might be a smuggler who isn't a trafficker. In other words, they're just providing a service, but then somebody on the other side who's receiving may have ill intent. But you have recruiting that can happen. You have the transit that can happen. You have the actual exploitation after the trafficking situation, but then they might be re-trafficked into a different situation. And then you have after where they will try to reintegrate, but then might be even abused by law enforcement or even some sketchy situations with the places that are supposed to help them or a person could be trafficked multiple times. And if you read different narratives, you can see some of this where you, you have a person who is there to gain trust and they say, hey, we'll offer you all of this and we'll give a certain amount of money. And then they go and bring the person and then they hand them off to somebody else. And then suddenly somebody is somewhere unfamiliar, unfamiliar with local law enforcement, unfamiliar with the community, unfamiliar with the country, so that they have less ability to know what's true, which is one reason why isolation is such a big factor, that if you don't isolate people, like that's one reason why Native Americans in the United States were less useful slaves, because they more often knew the terrain, they more often had social networks, whereas you bring African slaves, don't know the language, don't know the customs, might be different religions, don't know the landscape, and therefore easier to control. Exactly. And that still tends to be true today as far as relocating people. I think one of one of the weirdest things, and I think I mentioned this before, is that now when my friends hear, you know, what are you getting a doctorate in? Well, basically human trafficking. The first question they always have, well, after the, can you get a job with that? The next question is, so how much am I worth? They want to know if they get snatched shall we say what what would they go for on the open market and it's very hard to explain to to these people that well automatically just speaking english and having grown up in a situation where you know to call 911 that makes you unattractive to most traffickers because that allows you avenues to get assistance so i managed to find a paper called Psychological Coercion in Human Trafficking, an Application of Biderman's Framework, where they oh. looked exactly at this. They conducted semi-structured interviews with 12 adult women trafficked into Los Angeles County from 10 countries, primarily for domestic work, but also sex work. And while a small sample, it was illustrative. Looking at isolation, and again, these are specific applications to these people. This actually happened in their lives. So isolation, they were kept away from family and friends, so they had no social support. And so that created a power imbalance that made them more dependent, which led to depression and loneliness, as isolation does. Monopolization of perception. So they had limited exposure to the outside world and they had a limited understanding of the outside world in LA. So even when the trafficker was gone, they felt watched. Induced debilitation and exhaustion. 
They were deprived of basics, such as not enough food, not enough sleep, not enough health care. They worked day after day for long hours, and they were forced to consume drugs or alcohol. So I'll stop there. Any thoughts on these, JJ? Yeah. One, everything you've described are things that the U.S. US law labels as torture and are all things, in particular, food deprivation, sleep deprivation, constant stress, are all things, too, that very, very quickly actually change the chemicals in your brain and change the way that you deal with things cognitively. So the minute you take sleep away from someone or you put a heavy, heavy amount of stress on someone or you take away food or you introduce a drug or some sort of chemical, the minute you start damaging the way that a human being looks at the world and can sort of make rational choices and decisions. And so whether this is simply through not feeding someone or keeping someone awake for literally days on end, what you're doing is you're actually altering their ability of their brain to function at full capacity. And the minute you do that, you're torturing someone. And you're torturing someone, not just for your financial gain of getting the work product out of them, but you're torturing them to keep them complacent, to keep them working for you, to keep them from, you know, having the quick reaction time of, oh, I can go for the door. Oh, I can grab a phone. Oh, I should ask this person for help. Because instead, what you have are people who are just not only physically weak, so physically unable to fight back but physically, mentally unable to sort of compute things the way that a neurotypical, well-rested, well-fed person would be. And some of us can certainly relate to some of this and how it feels. And let's remove the induce, the force part of it. I'm guessing most of us know what it's like to have inadequate food or unhealthy food, not enough sleep, and not enough health care. And yeah. if you worked really hard at a job where you felt partially compelled, whether it's because of your value of performance or because you felt that just what needed to be done, or grad school, we know how stressful grad school can be, JJ and I, can affect your decision-making, your thought. And if you didn't have the choice, if you had less choice, I mean, it's one thing to feel like I should to get a good grade or because my boss wants me to, but another when you literally feel you're forced and it's not just happening for a week or a month, but it just keeps going on and on and on. So not only are you depleted, but you feel really no control. But then there's the drugs and alcohol. And I think what I always think about when I think about this is when you read reports of parents who are so sleep deprived that they forget their baby somewhere, sometimes in the car, or like they think they've gone to school and they just haven't, and they get home and they're like, I've lost my four-year-old. Because your brain just physically cannot handle it. Running on like an hour of sleep a night or disrupted sleep or stressful sleep. And so otherwise, really loving, caring parents forget their kid, who you would consider to be a very important thing. Like this isn't driving off with your Starbucks coffee cup on your top of your car. This is a living, breathing human who makes noise. 
And they do it literally just because they're tired and stressed out and their brain gets some sort of uh, an autopilot of drive home. I think we've all, if, if you've ever driven on a long trip, I think we all have sort of, you, you know, when you hit that point of a uh, road blindness, mm-hmm. where you realize that you, you weren't quite asleep, but you've managed to drive for a fair distance without realizing you're driving or sort of being aware of your surroundings and it's distracted, unsafe driving. Well, imagine if you're doing that, but instead your job is to work sort of in a sweatshop sewing and your brain gets sort of accustomed to working on this particular cycle. And then when you get off work, you're given a very small amount of food, but hey, we're also going to give you, in particular, I'm referencing sweatshops in China here, and I can put a link below to a few little stories if that'll make everybody happy. But in order to keep you actually awake and going longer, we're going to give you PCP. So here's or another stimulant. So here's a stimulant to keep your body physically going, but your brain still hasn't rested. And then after maybe five or six days of this, we complete the contract of whatever, you know, we're sewing blue jeans, shall we say. And now you have the day off. And people are shocked that the people, the trafficking victims who have been locked in the cycle of sewing, 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 very little food, no bathroom breaks, no sleep, lots of narcotics pumping through their system or stimulants, don't immediately run. And instead they tend to crash sort of in their provided dorm. Well, and the reason is, is that it would take weeks of being crashed out in that dorm for them to be able to actually think through okay, how, how do I get out? It's you can't break away from that. And so number four, threats. Threats okay. of arrest, deportation against family members, as we mentioned. Threats of violence and death. So we haven't actually, in this framework, talked about actual violence, which could be sexual violence, such as rape, or being beat. And those are often part of trafficking experiences. But even with antebellum slavery, if you want to retain this worker, one can't beat them all the time or they won't be of any value. Although in the case of modern trafficking victims where they are more rented and more disposable, they have a little more leeway potentially since they don't need to have them reproduce or anything like that. But The very threat of violence sometimes is sufficient. So this is one of the issues when you're looking at different sorts of trafficking. You look at sex trafficking, and it's bad because women are, well, women most often anyway, are beaten and they're raped. And while being beaten and raped are very bad, that's not everything that happens. And it sometimes creates this illusion that what makes it bad is the rape and the punishment and maybe the forced drug abuse rather than the fact that these people are being controlled. And I have this own, my own theory that that's one of the reasons why labor trafficking, we have a hard time seeing why it's actually bad because we don't ultimately see psychological coercion and psychological control as a horrible debilitating thing. You have an opinion on that, JJ? I think that that also goes back to sort of the ties people have to the community. Because the biggest thing that's brought up is they won't believe you. They'll believe me. 
And that can be kind of like you mentioned something big as in you'll get deported, I'll be here and be fine. Or it could be something slightly smaller, like, oh, I'll tell them that you're just a prostitute. It's not that you've been in sex trafficking, you've just been prostituting yourself. And then you'll go to jail and then I'll be here. And when you consider sort of the ties that human trafficking normally has to organized crime, this gets a little bit even, even more insidious because then it's not even that, well, the police won't believe you because you don't speak the local language. It's the police won't believe you because we are the police or we have ties to the police. And this might not be true, but I can certainly claim it and might give you reason as a victim to believe it. But we're part of the police. We're part of the government. Who can you go to? No one. We're in charge here. And so I think this is particularly true of people who don't speak the local language, people who are unlawful migrants or illegal immigrants or, or sort of aliens in the country, or people who are ethnic or religious minorities or in other ways already marginalized by sort of the people in power. And so, again, going back to this idea of if you've already been marginalized, if you were someone who had a known record of being a sex worker before you were trafficked, are they less likely to believe you because you've been arrested before? If you were someone who was a known drug addict, is law enforcement, is the government going to believe you over your trafficker who might be a well-respected member of the community when you've participated in criminal acts before? What is it? Are they going to believe you because you're a woman? Are they going to believe you because you're queer? Are they going to believe you because you're Muslim? What, what do you have sort of counting against you socially? And that just amplifies the threat. Oh, there's so much here. So number five, occasional indulgences. So again, this is from the semi-structured interviews of the paper. Occasional kindness to give them positive motivation for compliance. It's a reprieve. And since they don't know when they're going to get this kindness, it creates an anxiety to please and to not make mistakes in hopes of getting a reward. And these are not big rewards. These are rewards like food, being able to sleep, having a better bed you know, getting the best position to sleep, getting more fuel for your heat source. Maybe watching TV. Yeah, watching TV to get a little break, having access to the internet, maybe being allowed to call a family member to let them know that they're okay and to contact you. And then in some cases, getting paid. It might be a small paltry sum, but sort of getting some sort of money that you could maybe send home or that you could use to purchase something for yourself, getting fresh clothes, getting a haircut. Or, and sometimes it's not even a benefit for you, it's a benefit for, it might be someone in your family. Mm -hmm. So paying for your mother to get a better blanket, paying for your father to be able to go see a dentist, paying for your child maybe to get a, a toy for Christmas. And so it can, the reward doesn't negate the fact that if this person wasn't in this situation, they wouldn't need to be rewarded. Number six, demonstrating omnipotence and omniscience. The traffickers claimed they had connections to law enforcement, immigration, or deities, which created paranoia, fear, doubt, made them doubt their reality, showed them they don't control their fate. Say that again. Doubt their sense of reality. Creating self-doubt if you're going to control a person is really important. If you're thinking about that by a chance and you're noting how that might relate to some of the other ones. They do. These do work in tandem, such as this person is omniscient and they are monopolizing 
my perception of watching me. Therefore, I want to do well so I can get it a reward. Number seven, degradation, which also relates to self-doubt. Mm -hmm. They insult, they humiliate, they deny them privacy and dignity. So that they're reduced to animal level concerns that uh, you don't have a room where you have full privacy. You don't have full privacy of your belongings. And and again, I think like just to emphasize, as you said, it's this isn't a one at a time thing. This is a step thing. Mm-hmm. So these are often things that are happening simultaneously, or they're happening in sort happening in sort of a scaffolding situation. And all of these things have a huge impact on people's perception. For example, again, if you're not sleeping, or if you've been given drugs or alcohol. Or say, as, as we have in some cases, and hopefully maybe we can talk about this in a future podcast, if you have been on, say, important medications or psychiatric medications, and now those are being withheld from you or given to you on, a, on an uneven schedule, your perception of reality is fundamentally tweaked because you're unable to actually grasp reality. And then you mix in sort of these coercive techniques and it all builds on itself. So then number eight, enforcing trivial demands. So that's they focused on petty concerns. And then the people who were trafficked felt a need to be perfect, which if any of you have ever tried to be perfect, you know how that can be stressful and make you anxious, and that's when you're doing it by choice. And when you also have a lack of sleep, food, social support, and you combine all these, then these trivial demands can add to the stress. And the perfectness that you're striving for is in many cases not a perfectness that could even be attained because your your trafficker, your captor, is actually setting up situations for you to fail. You cannot win. You're never going to make your captor 100% happy. You can appease them for a short while and get slightly better treatment, but you're never going to make them happy enough to let you go. But you might start to think, well, it's my fault. If only I could fulfill these tasks the way that I'm being told, I could be released from this. And that's when you hear we hear victims talk, us, talk about, to us about stories they were told about, well, you work here for a number of years, you produce a certain amount of product, and you can go home. Or you'll be paid and you can go home. And so they hold off for this sort of mythical freedom that is based on their ability to be perfect under these circumstances. And it's a freedom that's not going to come. But then they feel guilty because they feel like it's a freedom that they kept themselves from getting. So drawing from an IOM report where they looked at trafficking victims who were out of their situations. Loss of control is often recounted as the most humiliating aspect of the trauma. They may not be allowed to decide when to eat, when to sleep. They might have their bodily integrity either injured or otherwise invaded. They might be given a false identity as some are. And so when you're looking, yeah, when you're looking at the victim, it's not just this, it's not just the harshness of not being able to leave and possibly having your bodily integrity controlled, but it's all of it to where you as a person feel broken down and dehumanized. 
I just, and the thing I want to tell, make, just make everybody focus is imagine you're an adult. You're married, you're a parent, you've been working since you were 16, you're now 45 years old, you've gone to Qatar to work as a construction worker, and suddenly for the first time in your adult life, you are made to pee your pants because you're not allowed a bathroom break. What does that do to you? You know, it's not, it's not the soiled pants part that's the most damaging. It's that you were not permitted to control a particular body function, and it's the shame associated with that. And so drawing from people like Martin Seligman, I've read his book on optimism, learned optimism, and thought it was a phenomenally helpful book. And definition of depression there in his book is conscious negative thinking. And then learned helplessness, which causes depression, is when you feel like nothing you do matters. And I don't know if any of you have ever felt that in any part of your life. I have. When you have somebody facilitating that and reinforcing that through various means of control, and where they're trying to create behavior to induce learned helplessness, where it's like, maybe you could escape, but you're so beaten down at a given point, they're just not going to after a while because they're just beaten. And that's why people don't. And then some people try, and then they fail, or they're beaten, or they lose privileges, and then they don't want to try again. Or they're worried about whether somebody is actually going to help them or, or they're actually working for their trafficker. That these are things I've read in stories. They're just so scared and it's just not worth the effort to change in their own mind. Mm -hmm. Because it's, there's still the fear of the unknown of, well, what, what worse could happen to me? And if you've ever laid in your bed at night and become convinced that there are creatures living in your closet that are going to come out and murder you, you can think of a lot of terrible things as possibilities. Well, this is among the reasons that the media narrative is important. And there is a report where that's mentioned as a factor. What is the media narrative and how are migrants talked about or illegal migrants talked about? To walk the line between, okay, maybe we don't want to encourage certain behavior, like people coming into the country a certain way, that's fair. But if the media narrative in some way dehumanizes or makes people fear, that can be used by traffickers. And it is used by traffickers. So that's among the reasons we get concerned mm -hmm. with what sometimes it comes across as anti-foreigner sentiment. It builds. It's insidious. I have said that word like nine times in this particular podcast. That is my trigger word, apparently, tonight. But it's a problem. So it's manipulating how a person feels, telling them how they feel. And... Uh, Oh, there's so many ways. Uh, Bitterman's framework has also been used by Leslie Timmerin, Mega MD, in her analysis of domestic partner abuse, where she noted how battering fatigue is similar to what happens with combat soldiers, that you can be shell-shocked, 
that it's this idea of not only do people in war or torture or trafficking in some domestic abuse situations feel fatigue and, and not only do they potentially have PTSD afterwards, but PTSD is technically trauma relating to an event or a cluster of events, as I understand it. And this is more like something of a chronic stress disorder where the stress doesn't go away. So if you can think of any time where you've had consistent stress in your life, it's more like that. It's where there's ongoing stress and unsettling where you're unsure of what's going on, you're unsure what you control, and it just wears a person out physically and psychologically. And then if, if you're in a trafficking situation, you don't know when it's going to end. And for people who are in forms of debt bondage where they are in a number of cases able to pay it off, but then through creative accounting, it's not as soon as they expect or things cost more or debt accrues more. And so there's progress, but then there's not a full knowing of when this is going to end, which creates psychological stress. So then it gets to post-traumatic mental health, which will be the last thing we'll talk about today. We want to walk the line between a person who is a survivor like there's no really there's no one word that encapsulate a person like they are more than these words that we give to them you know what we've done in the past personal it we're more than that so there's no word that really defines a person who's had this experience mm -hmm. and people are not simply helpless victims once they leave a trafficking situation but especially well it, it's hard to stereotype at all. A person who's been in a trafficking situation, whether a short time or a long time, probably has psychological issues resulting, if not health issues, uh, physical health issues resulting from that experience. And it's why it's important to look at it as more than just rape, more than just physical abuse, more than just physical restraint, that a given person may be beaten they may have gone through an experience where they feel like they haven't had control and where they want to have dignity and if the situation they're put into whether it's law enforcement whether it's a post-trafficking center for victims whether it's somebody's home that to try to help that person and assist that person, you have to recognize that they may have a lot of psychological baggage and may need certain psychological assistance or patience such that, for instance, there are times where people are in a facility afterwards where they're again being told what to do and where they still don't feel autonomy. And so from what I've seen, we, while there's so many well-meaning people out there, that it's so important to understand what a person might have gone through and to try to ascertain, which can be challenging if a person isn't trusting and has been emotionally manipulated by one or more people over time, that there's just certain mental health and psychological health issues that may be combined with other issues that make this really complicated. 
I mean, with your work with Swan and, and all other experiences, just what are all your thoughts, JJ? Well, it's just, it's one of those things where there's already so few services available to survivors of human trafficking or victors, victims of human trafficking. And those services that are available are short term. There are very few that are offered for, shall we say, a long term, so more than a year or two. There are very few services that are sort of lifelong or extended services offered. When you're dealing with somebody's mental health, that takes a long time to fix. And your mental health is going to impact your sort of attachment involvement and your ability to be well in all other areas of your life. So when we have so few services for human trafficking victims and they're short term, and we have so few of those services that are available in the short term that are devoted to dealing with psychological issues, what you end up having is people who for, if they're lucky for a year, have a bunch of stuff sort of schizophrenically thrown at them, but no real therapy or discussion of what they've been through beyond the physical. And so that then bleeds over into all areas of their life. So people who are, who are given access to certain things that could be quite helpful in terms of aid packages or services might not take advantage of them or get these programs at their full effectiveness because they're dealing with this unspoken mental trauma. And then these people are just sort of left out in the world even more vulnerable than they were when they went in to the trafficking situation. Right. And I don't know what all of you, what all your experiences are out there. I've had an emotionally traumatic experience one day. I've had my psychological challenges and, you know, I know what depression is like and so on. And that's nothing like what some people experience in trafficking. Mm -hmm. And so to think like what the trust issues might be, what just how it feels to be so exhausted and so there's a few surveys i'll link to but i'll draw out a few things these are both surveys of about 120 people and i especially like this one because it has a male and female survivors in england and it's pretty well balanced between sexual exploitation domestic servitude and labor exploitation but about half of them had chronic medical conditions afterwards 70% had some sort of depressive disorder, anxiety, or PTSD. Over 30% thought about suicide. About 14% had hazardous alcohol use. 71% were afraid of reprisal from their trafficker. Fear can last. And if you think about people who've been in abusive families or women who've left abusive husbands where that fear can last that leaving the situation that while I'm not anti-rescue, we sometimes will be critical of raid and rescue because it's oversimplistic, and really that's one of the big problems with it, is it is oversimplistic. You rescue a person, and let's assume that they want to be rescued. You know, they are truly in a traffic situation they want to get out of. And getting that person out of the situation does not end it. There might still be fear. They might have medical issues. And I'm being repetitive because I'm trying to drive it home that this 
is a complex phenomenon that is not just about implementing legal safeguards to keep people from trafficking and getting people out of trafficking situations. It's, well, how do you help people recover? How do you recognize labor trafficking as a horrible thing that dehumanizes people and beats them down as people? So that's mainly what we wanted to talk about today, and it's what I really wanted to talk about. Well, and then I think what, what's going to be good is that, and so in the next cast that we do, so next week you guys will get access. <laughs> guys, look at me being all heteronormative. You people out there in the world will get access to sort of why this is a problem then when we go into the legal aspect of trafficking. And so that'll be a little bit more nuts and bolty, but I think we'll set things up quite well. But to simplify like what the recommendations are from this, like recognize that the psychological coercion part of trafficking is always there. Whether a person is raped or beaten or confined physically, they are being controlled in some manner psychologically. American slaves psychologically were coerced. Traffickers coerced. And that if we're going to help people recover and deal with the situation of trafficking and, quote, end human trafficking worldwide, well, we have to provide adequate services where we're recognizing what they might have gone through and making sure that we're providing enough supports mm -hmm. for people to recover and be not socially dead and actively feeling a part of society I mean, I feel like I'm finding the right words because I don't want to pigeonhole people, but to get people to a better place, to where they feel control of their lives, where they're not just having flashbacks, where they're not living in fear, all of that. And where they can move forward and, and build upon the life that was sort of interrupted. Yeah, and maybe to trust and just, just all of these these things. Well, with that, uh, thank you for listening to this episode, and uh, we will be back next week. We'll see you, well, talk to you then. Bye, everybody! This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.